I'm Vic Cohen, and it's a fair question. It's a fair question. It's a fair question. I'm Vic Cohen, and it's a fair question. It's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair question. I'm Vic Cohen, and it's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair quest, quest, quest. Hello, everyone. This is Vic Cohen broadcasting live from downtown Los Angeles' Skid Row Studios. The name of the show is It's a Fair Question, because on this show, every question is a fair question. No question is too personal or ever off limits. And tonight we've really lucked out. Our guest, Really? What? Really? Yeah, you wait, John. Okay. That's our guest. That's our guest tonight. He's going to feel the full impact of It's a Fair Question in just a moment or two. Uh, let's welcome to the show, John Mendoza. How are you, Mr. Cohen? I am fantastic, and I want to thank you for coming out here. My pleasure. Yes, for those who don't know John, which there might be just a few, John's credits include... As a stand-up comic, David Letterman, right? Yes. And um, how many times were you on that show? Were you on more than once? I don't remember. Uh, I did Letterman, I think, four times. Okay, great. Now, when you say did him, you mean the show? Yes. Okay. Just want to be clear, because this is Hollywood, uh, and, you know, we never know. It is a fair question, right? Fair enough. Fair enough. What about Johnny Carson? Uh, you've done, I did him. You did, didn't do the show, but did him. I did him. Okay, because, good. I, uh, what, how many times did you do Carson? I did it a lot. I never counted. Uh -huh. I just did it. Like, well, I was there was about a, a five six year period where I did it like every every other month. Wow, that's a good that's a good situation where you don't even know how many times. Yes. Well, let me ask you this. Yes. Have you made love? Is the number of women you've made love to greater than the yes. number of appearances? <laughs> you really? And what number would that be? Just out of curiosity, would you say over a hundred? Yeah. <laughs> it's a fair question. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how it's a fair question. Yeah. We're a minute in and I'm already asking about the number of lovers you've and had. And that's just Atlanta. <laughs> yeah, right. Is that her name? Yes. <laughs> no, you, um, well, we're going to talk about that a little bit because I know you've had some crazy stories on the road. Oh. But let's talk about Meatballs 4, one of your most interesting credits. That was actually kind of fun. I was having breakfast with a, a friend of mine at uh, Dupar's. And he said to me, what do you do? Dupar's, by the way, is a popular uh, mm -hmm. a coffee shop. Is this the one in uh, the farmer's the best, market? Or? The best pancakes there are. Really? Uh, no, in Studio City. Okay. It was great. And I was sitting there, and a friend of mine said to me, he said, what are you doing in the month of November and December? I said, nothing. I don't know yet. So he said, uh, well, how would you like to go do a movie? He said, what you'll do is you'll, you can play golf all day long. Nighttime, you, uh, you'll shoot your scenes with mostly naked women. <laughs> and uh, I'll pay you money. So I did it. We shot it up uh, somewhere up in Fresno or something like that. And everyone probably can agree that there's probably a consensus that Meatballs 4, definitely the quintessential Meatballs of all four. Were there, was there a fifth? I have no idea. Yeah, but that it was a good... It sucked so bad. <laughs> it sucked beyond well, bad. What was your role in that Meatballs for? I was a Gavone. I was a, a bouncer. I don't even remember what it was about. It was about some camp that was closing or someone was buying a camp. I don't remember what it was You know what's the thing about you that I find very fascinating? And there's lots. Okay. But there's one thing in particular. Okay. A lot of people who've been, who've had quite great success in the mm -hmm. entertainment business seem very focused. You know, there, there's the Seinfeld kind of legendary, mm -hmm. um, uh, kind of mechanical almost in how he would go about his, say, craft. Correct. But when I talk to you about your mm -hmm. craft, it feels a little sloppy. Like there's not this, and not as an insult, but no. not very super organized. Like I imagine 
it to be with with people who've you know done this for thirty years, for whatever many years. You're so laid back, and that pro- that just works for you, obviously. Well, it probably worked for me and against me at the same time. So you know, if I was more organized, I and you and you take Seinfeld. Seinfeld is. You know, a lot of people go, oh, you know, you're so mechanical and you're so uh, this and that uh, in, a, in a very negative way. People have a tendency, of, I don't know if it's because he's at the top and people like to chop someone down like that. I, I, I'm jealous of people like that. Him, Rita Rutner, there's people like that that are so organized at what they do. And I, I, I think uh, my ADD is just so bad that it, it, it to, to sit down and actually put everything in order is just so freaking painful for me. I, I can't get there. Right, but it's, it, despite that, what's really remarkable is the great success you've had. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. So I wanted to, um, I've been doing a lot of research on you, John P. Mendoza. Okay. That's where you can find, by the way, if you want to follow John on Twitter, on, it's John P. John P. Yes. What's Mendoza. the P, Peter? Uh I don't know. You don't know. It's a good thing we're talking. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, you can find him. And I, I wanted to, I pulled a clip because I've been listening to you all day okay. online. And uh, for those who aren't familiar, let's run a little 30 second clip of some of John's stuff. Got that, Jeremy? <laughs> my sister didn't have such a good day today. My sister's asthmatic in the middle of an asthma attack. She got an obscene phone call. <laughs> Guys, said, did I call you? Would you call me? <laughs> I was on a plane the other day. I wanted to make a phone call. I didn't know who to call, so I called Domino's. <laughs> About 15 minutes later, this Domino's plane pulled alongside of us. Great. Now, John, the, I would guess, I'm mm-hmm. just going to guess here, you probably don't have a sister with asthma. No, I don't. No. But now a lot of comics liked, uh, one of the greatest things I ever heard, and I use this in my own comedy writing and performing, is mm-hmm. um, to use the truth as an anchor excuse me, use the truth as, uh, as a springboard, not as an anchor. In other words, take the nugget of what the truth is. But a lot of, especially newer writers, mm-hmm. will get married to the truth, where they got to say they really happen right. like yes. this. And then mm-hmm. they're creating in their head, mm-hmm. they're so enamored by the truth when no one cares. We just want to laugh, right? Now, where did that joke come from, that asthma joke? I wrote uh, 25 words in one row, and I wrote 25 words in another row. And I matched them up. You're kidding me. I swear to you, that's how I write. I don't get that. Well, I, I, I had my sister on this side here. I, let's, let, I, I, oh, I, I wish I had my, my book with me. But I, I, I even taught my son how to do this also. And you, you write down 25 words on, on, in, a, in a row on this side, and then you write 25 words on the other side. And then you see what words match up with the other side that you, where you can make a joke out of. So um, are you going directly? Like, like my, uh, uh, so it's two lists, right. vertical lines, right. and they're just adjectives, uh, nouns? Uh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It, there, there should be, I, I remember there used to be a system, but I don't remember what the system okay. is anymore. <laughs> uh, you, I did a lot of pot. Um, <laughs> You're doing a little right now. I, you know, we, yeah, I bet I am. Now I want to uh, clarify what I mean by that is John is not smoking any pot. No, I'm not. No, and neither am I. But prior to our show here live at skidrowstudios.com, <laughs> there was a show called The Hot Box. Yeah. And the reason, and I never knew this, John, you didn't either when I was telling you, a hot box mm-hmm. is where people get really like messed up on pot. Right. So I, I'm sitting three, two and a half feet across from John and I cannot see him. <laughs> I mean, this is a true hot box. It is a hot we box. We are in the hot box. So well, go on. Uh, there was a joke I did. Uh, one of the first ones I wrote like that was about... Uh, 
I had smoking on one side and I had midget on the other side and it was about stopping smoking. And I said, uh, when, when you try and stop smoking, uh, I forget how the joke goes, but something about, you know, you, 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 you stop smoking when uh, a midget walks past you. Oh, 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 oh no. Uh, <laughs> it has something, it, it's whatever it was. It's the pot people. Yeah. You know, John no. hasn't smoked so long. He's overwhelmed. This is why he stopped. This, this is, <laughs> I know I stopped because I, 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 when I first moved out here, I used to spend, I used to get high. And then I would drive uh, to the hotel I was staying at, and I would get, have these panic attacks. So I would spend the entire night in front of Cedar Sinai waiting to die. Oh, wow. Yeah. So well, you picked I, a, you've got taste in hospitals, at least. Well, it was the closest one around. Did they, what do you mean you just stood outside? Why didn't you just go right into the emergency room? Some zone? nights I did. Some nights, depending on how high I was, I would, some nights I would go into the emergency room. Other nights I would just sit out in front of the emergency room if I wasn't too high. And I would sit there all night long. I was doing a pilot for uh, this guy, James Comack. And I, I was way over my head. I didn't know what I was doing. I had no idea what I was doing. And the, the anxiety attacks would get so large that I would just go there and I would hang out in front of and And then when the sun would come up and, and drugs would wear off, then I'd go back to my hotel, take a shower, go to work. Wow. Now, uh, what year was that? 84, maybe. And when you say you were doing a pilot, was this, uh, you were starring? Or uh, I was one of five people. I don't know who the other people mm -hmm. were. Do you, do you suffer from anxiety? Um, I, I don't suffer from it. I enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a career. It's, you know, turned, yeah, I feel yeah. the same way. Yeah. You know, I can relate to anxiety. That's why I'm asking. Yeah, I, I think we all have anxiety. I, I, I don't think I suffer from anxiety. I suffer from, uh, not knowing what I'm doing mm -hmm. a lot. Now, uh, you, you know, I know that, um, you, you have an incredible, you've had, you've really lived like nine lives. It's I amazing have. you're alive, John. I'm 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 a, a an old fucking cat. Well, I'm not saying you're old. I'm just saying you okay. you've dodged some bullets. I've got yeah. What'd you say? I've got uh, yeah. I mean, literally, you fought in Vietnam. Yes, I did. Were you dodging bullets? Yes. How did you end up in Vietnam? Uh, uh, what, I got bus? drafted. <laughs> a bus. Yes, I, I Greyhound? walked. I walked. <laughs> now tell tell me, you're um, living in South Bronx, New York. Uh, no, at that time I was living in Queens, okay. uh, Long Island City. And How I got old? drafted. 18. I got drafted and I went in the army and then I went to, um, I don't know where I went. I, I went to Georgia and then next thing I know I was in, in Vietnam and then after that I went to Korea and I spent about a year and a half in Korea uh, smoking opium and then I left and uh, went back to New York. Now, just to be clear, the government didn't send you out there to smoke opium. Correct? That was just part of what happened. No, I was a special <laughs> rescue dog. <laughs> you would sniff it out I and would then, sniff it out to make it? sure. And then so I could find out if other uh, <laughs> people were doing it. I love how you throw yourself into your work. I, I was very good yeah, at it. Yeah, yeah. God bless you. Thanks Actually, for protecting us. In the, in, in the compound that I was at, they would allow us to smoke as much opium as we wanted, a pot, whatever we wanted, as long as we did it on top of the ammo dump. So we would go to the ammo dump and we would sit there and, and we were so high that we didn't even care. It was just fine. Well, the great thing about your story is suddenly I'm looking at Jeremy Hansen, the man who, one of the guys who runs this place, owns it. He's running the board tonight. Jeremy, make, are you suddenly thinking about joining the uh, military? So I could smoke weed yeah, on get a paid pile for of it? ammo? Uh, yeah. Um, no. No, you're no. happy just well, doing now, it here in the you studio? You can't do it now because now they, they test you. So you actually have to... Function. One of my uh, favorite pot stories about work is I was once a TV reporter in Macon, Georgia. Mm -hmm. And there, the big news story was that they had busted a local pot 
plant, like uh, someone in the in southern Georgia. So they had they had all the press come out, and they had the inmates as a show of what they've done, the great work, burn the pot. So there's like you know like tons of pot being burned. That's very funny. <laughs> and we're walking through this thing like. <sighs> Yeah, and the and these you know it's a real prison uh, sentence mm-hmm. for these guys. It was the best day of their life. I love. Pot. So uh, when you were you don't smoke pot anymore because of the anxi- the paranoia it would cause. The last time I got high was about ten seconds ago because of walking in here. Yeah. Uh, no, well it was it was it was a series of drugs and it was a lot of stuff and it was like eighty six and I was uh, sitting in a bar with some girl watching Letterman. And it said, tonight on David Letterman, John Travolta, Mary Lou Hanna, and John Mendoza. And I turned to this girl I was with, and I said, wow, they're doing a rerun of me. And she said, you taped that five hours ago. <laughs> and then you probably said, how'd I do? <laughs> I watched it. I did, I did okay. And you're I like, that guy's good. funny. Yeah. I like him. I like him. And then yeah. I went to rehab the next day, and that was the end of it. Did you really? Yeah. Hey, mm-hmm. um, if you'd like to join us, our phone number here at skidrowstudios.com. Again, we are live downtown Los Angeles, talking with John Mendoza. Mendoza. If you, like I said, if you haven't heard John, he's all over the internet. He also works a lot with Howie Mandel, a mutual friend of ours, and he travels around the country with Howie. You can always catch John at a concert. Good chance if Howie's performing, John's right there with him. We will be, where will we be? We'll be in uh, Hollywood in in Florida at the Hard Rock on... uh uh, this is January, January 28th. Okay, yeah. there you go. John uh, Mendoza at the Hard Rock, January 28th, did mm-hmm. you say? Hollywood, Florida. Okay, yeah. great. Howie. Very good. Now, I know, uh, like I said, if you wanted to check Howie out online, his concert dates, generally if they're big arenas or casinos, mm-hmm. there's an excellent chance you're going to get uh, the treat of seeing John. Again, the number here is 800-893-9562. That's 800 893 Nine five six two, and uh, we're talking with John Mendoza. I don't want to talk. I don't want to belabor this, but I am very fascinated with the Vietnam now. How long were you in Vietnam? Uh, a few months. And and why why such a short tour? Um, it, it got hairy, and I got hit, and I left. And while I was in the hospital, I didn't get hit bad. It was just all like some fragments. And while I was there, the guys told me that if you act really, really crazy, you can get out of here and they'll send you to either back to the States or to, to like Korea. So I did exactly what this guy told me to do. And when the doctors came and checked me out, they said, you go that direction. And I went that direction. I wound up in Korea. So, uh, and that doesn't work for everyone. You have to be in the military. Like if someone listening were to act crazy, they wouldn't be sent they to Korea. They would not be sent to Korea. Yeah. You would not be able to go and have a kimchi sandwich over. <laughs> in, in Was that her name? Kimchi, that was kimchi. Actually, it's a horrible have, food. I mean, I'm curious about something else. Go ahead. What I understand in the military mm-hmm. is that when you guys are off, mm-hmm. the sex is crazy. You're getting like uh, local prostitutes and uh, it is just, uh, everything gets nuts. Like the guys are just, they just horny and things go crazy because some of them are afraid they're never going to live anyways. Correct. Uh, and when I was in Korea, it was like 33 cents on a dollar. So you would get everything and anything. It was insane. It, I lived in Sin City, literally in Sin City. You would walk out the door and whatever you wanted was there. Mm-hmm. I mean, as far as sex, drugs, whatever you wanted was there. But but uh, Korea was a bit of a vacation for you, right? There wasn't much happening. Oh, there was nothing happening. It was I, I was in charge of a laundry warehouse. <laughs> I didn't do anything. I, there were like fifty. It was it was a quartermaster outfit and. The uh, the Koreans, 
that, that, that works for the government. They did all the work and we just made sure that, I'm not sure what we made sure of, but we were there and, and they did all the work. How and did, well, how did uh, your, uh, one other thing I'm curious about, mm -hmm. in Vietnam, were you actually shooting people? I mean, literally in combat. Yeah. Enough to get hurt, obviously. Yeah. That, that's obvious. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is that hard to talk about? Uh, you know, I, 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 a few years ago, I, I, I decided that I'm not going to really, it, it doesn't matter to me anymore. Uh, so I moved on kind of. When you say doesn't matter. Years ago, it used to bother me a lot. To talk about it? Yeah. Do you get PTSD? Uh, I, I did. And yeah. how, did, how did you treat that? Um, pot. <laughs> uh, time. Time. Yeah. I think time. Uh, that was 1969. Mm. So, you know, I don't know what year this is, 13. And so it's been a long time. So I've learned to deal with a lot of stuff. And, you know, the great thing about stand-up for me, uh, it, it, it got me to learn who I was in life. How, how's that? Um, to write material and to, and, and to get that stuff out, you have to learn out, you have to learn what you're good at in life. And I think through stand up and, and, and being out there on your own, you have to learn, uh, you have to learn who you are and the people that are successful at it really, really get to know who they are and very comfortable with themselves. The other people, not so much. Well, what, just so I'm clear on this, the people who get good at it, you're talking about successful stand-up comics, mm -hmm. are the ones who becomes, uh, comfortable become themselves. very true with themselves. Is that because um, the audience responds most to honesty? Yes. And, okay. And if they see you doing an impression of someone, it's like, like, like even if you watch a movie and you see someone that's an, an actor that's really bad and you say to them, they're, they're, they're not playing that character. It's, it's the same thing as a stand-up. You, you really have to sell that character. Who are you that would... Let me tell you who I think you are. Okay. And then you tell me if I'm correct. Okay. Um, I think you come across as a, a little bit of a lovable curmudgeon, but not much of a curmudgeon. In mm -hmm. other words, irritated by the world, but also with a smile and a smirk. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I get it, yeah. I mean, some of that's also from just talking mm -hmm. to you, yeah. you know, and that which mm -hmm. might be different than... Yeah, on no, stage. I just, I, I, I enjoy what I do. I don't think there's anything more fun than making a room full of people laugh. Um, so to me, it's just, it's, it's, that's me. The guy mm -hmm. that enjoys like making people laugh. Right. It's that simple. That simple. Well, um, how did, how did the Vietnam experience, your military experience influence your comedy? Not at all. You, nothing came out of that, no. that you fed, mm -hmm. that fed in? No. Were you funny uh, with the other military people around you or, you know? I don't remember it that well. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, I loved getting up in front of people and making people laugh and stuff like that. Um, a couple of years ago, I went back to my grammar school reunion and uh, this girl, Marianne, said to my, my, my teacher, said, said, do you remember John Mendoza? And she said, yeah. And he said, here he is. And she said, what do you do for a living? This girl, Marianne, went, oh, he's a comic and he's, he's got his own TV show on NBC and he, and he works in front of concerts and he does all this, blah, blah, blah. And she said, no. And I said, what do you mean no? She said, in my 35 years of teaching, that was the quietest person I ever met. So in school, I was very quiet, but I loved listening to Carlin and Flip Wilson and Red Fox and people like that. So I would memorize all of those albums and stuff like that. That's what I loved doing when I was a kid. I, I had no idea that you could become a stand-up comic. I thought you had to belong to a union. I thought you had to belong to a circus family or something like that. And when I went to Catch a Rising Star in New York and I said to somebody, I said, well, how do you get up on that stage there? And they said, just come here and audition. I went, 
all right, I quit my job and I and and it was great. So how many years have you been a professional stand-up? I started in 78, 79. I think by the time I started in 78, I think by the time I finally got stage time in New York because it was it was it was uh it was such a uh there was like Seinfeld and Larry Miller and George uh, George Wallace and I mean there was all of these people starting so you couldn't get stage time so mm -hmm. what we used to do is we used to go there was about three or four of us what we would do is we would go to a Baskin Robbins on Broadway and we'd stand out in front of Baskin Robbins during the summertime and while people were coming in and out we would stand out in the street and do stand up in the middle of New York City and then we'd go hang out uh, the improv all night long and who who else are we talking about? Like, uh, is this Bill Maher, Seinfeld? Uh, they they were over at um, they were at the they were there the no. comic strip. <laughs> I was over at the Improv, and in front of me was like uh, Rick Overton and Gilbert Godfrey and Joe Piscopo and people like that. And so you would hang out there every night, every single. You would go there seven nights a week, and you would hang out with with with. 40 other comics and you would just wait and hope that the, the the manager of the place would come out and go, you're next. And you used to, back and then, the club would stay open until like 3 o'clock in the morning. There'd be an audience so 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. It was great. Uh, usually the last comic on was Gilbert. For Gilbert what Godfrey. reason? Uh, because no one could follow him. Because <laughs> he was so funny? He was so funny. It was so amazing that it was just, I mean, and everyone would come into the room just to watch him. It was great. How does it... Um when you see a comic who's just brilliant, mm -hmm. um, do you feel like excited? Uh, or oh, yes. You, or, okay, or, or is there jealousy? No, no, I've never gotten that. Uh, fortunately for me, I, I, I know people that do get that. Uh, no, there's, there's, uh, there's a comic named Bob Shaw, and Bob Shaw used to do bits that you would just sit there, and the only jealous part was, oh, God, I wish I wrote that. Oh, man, or I wish I was that funny. You know, uh, Gilbert, you would see, there is no one that does impressions, no one tells a joke better than Gilbert Godfrey. Just the best. And you would sit there and just sit in the back of the room. And I always enjoyed, I enjoyed comedy. So for me, it was always fun watching different things. It was like when Eddie Murphy came in. Eddie didn't really have a whole lot of material and stuff like that. So he did, he did uh, Cosby albums and prior albums and stuff like that. And he would just do that. And you would just sit in the back of the room and just watch this guy work. It was great. There was a comedy team called uh, Mac and Jamie. And they would blow the room apart every single night. So it was fun, fun watching that stuff. Well, what about, okay, we talk about Mac and Jamie. Mm -hmm. okay, I've not heard of them. Mm -hmm. In your mind, were they successful comics? Yeah, yeah, they were very successful for a long time. Uh, they they wanted to go into the corporate route and stuff like that, so they made a lot of money doing that. Um, but you could not follow them. They would literally blow the room apart every single night. In your mind, what is, what, signifies someone being a successful stand-up? Is it them being tr just true to themselves and that's it? Or is it there must be some kind of commercial success along with that? I think it's a combination. I think there's, you know, uh, you know, um, I mean, you know, take Howie. You know, a lot of people didn't even We're know We're talking about Howie, Howie Mandel. Howie, yeah, a lot of people didn't know Howie was a stand-up. Uh, and he's been touring on, you know, and sold out, you know, Rockefeller Center and and and, and places like that. You tour, you tour with Howie, and and you go into rooms where you're shocked that he. When I first started touring with him, you know, three, four thousand people would come out to see him. It was brilliant. It was it was pretty cool. Yeah. You know, and plus he's funny, so it worked out really, really good. Uh, you know, I I enjoy seeing stuff like that. Seinfeld, you know, you go watch Jerry. You know, a lot of people go, oh, he's so bland. He's so you know, mayonnaise. He's fun fun in that you like his material or he's a fun guy off stage? His material. 
I don't know him that well off stage. I, I know him. I, I we hung out a million years ago, but uh, but no, it's all about on stage. In the eighties, uh, everyone knows, or a lot of people know who study comedy. They know it was an amazing time, like a golden era of stand up comedy. Pretty cool. Yeah, and the fact that you were in the thick of it. Uh, was there a sense of camaraderie among the guys as far as wanting to help each other and uh, sure. see everyone succeed? Or or was there this mm -hmm. backstabbing kind of attitude of jealousy and you want, like you won't believe who got the Tonight Show? Sure. Oh, I'll give you two, two, two sides of that story. Uh, one was, I think it was Jerry or it was Larry Miller. I forget who it was. Uh, I did a joke about, uh, I said I went skydiving and one of the guys that went skydiving was blind. I said, did you ever hear a dog scream at 10,000 feet? <laughs> Never really got a laugh. And someone said to me, why don't you make it a German Shepherd? So that, And then I put the German Shepherd in and it became a great joke. Yeah, that's a great uh, joke. So cut to that, I wind up getting a show on NBC and Seinfeld has got a bunch of comics working for him and stuff like that. And I come downstairs and we share a community area. And I come downstairs to get a cup of coffee and there's a comic there. And he's going, I can't believe Mendoza got a, a, a TV show. He sucks. How come he gets a TV show and I don't get a TV show? And I heard the whole conversation and I waited for it to end. And about two seconds after the end, I walked in, hey guys, how you doing? I heard the whole freaking conversation. Right. And then what did the guy say? You just saw him just, uh, you know. Right. And I told two people in the room that I'd heard the conversation <laughs> and it got back to him. Right. Well, let's talk about that show. Because um, this is something that I would, I would have a hard time with, I think, what you went through. And, you, you know, maybe you don't think you went through anything, but 1993, 94, mm -hmm. you have, uh, if I, you find out you have every stand-up comics dream. The dream mm -hmm. today, it hasn't changed. Sure. John Mendoza's getting his own mm -hmm. sitcom yeah. network. Mm -hmm. Now, in 93, 94, this is still before cable's really taken a hold. Correct. So there aren't a lot of places to go. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. So you get the call. Mm -hmm. What are you thinking? Um... It was very funny. Um, I got a call from William Morris. I was at William Morris, and they were putting on a showcase. So they had like 15, 16 comics, and they asked me, this one, uh, this agent, Rick Greenstein, said to me, why don't you come down and do the showcase? And then another agent said, no, don't do it because this is for new people coming in. And I had nothing to do anyway, so I said, well, let me do it. So when I walked in the room, I did, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I kind of got pissed because all I saw was like, young girls in the room, and I thought to myself, I thought this was supposed to be a network thing. It looked like they sent their assistants and stuff like that down. So I walked on stage, and I, and I thought I'd do a joke that would really, really piss them off. So I said, uh, my daughter uh, my daughter said to me tonight, Daddy, Daddy, I'm growing breasts. Want to see him? And I went, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. so the next day I got a phone call from NBC. What they wanted was they wanted the anti-Cosby. Mm -hmm. I was the anti-Cosby. Right. The show didn't Just because you're white? Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> That's it? And plus I'm tall. Uh, <laughs> it did, the show didn't come off that way. Um, well, okay, so you get you get the sitcom. Right. Now, this is a fair question, John. Were you a millionaire the second that you found out? No. Okay, what if, I'm just going to ask. You don't have to answer. Mm -hmm. What kind of money are we talking in episode? You did 15 of them. Good money. Are we talking... Hundred grand, couple hundred grand oh, per episode. No, 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 no. It was much lower than that. It was, it was a quarter. It was a quarter of that. It, it wasn't. It wasn't. It was. It was nice money. It wasn't great money. I made a lot of money also doing uh, development deals after that. But that, uh, no, no, no. It was. It was nice money. It was. It, it, probably by today's standard, it would be like a walk-on on a TV show. 
I mean, what you hear these people getting today, 250,000, 300,000 episodes. No, 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 it wasn't even close right. to that. But here's what's going on. What? You know, because mm -hmm. you've seen, and we all have seen what could happen. This could be the ticket to everything, all your dreams. What? Right? Sitcom. Oh, You're sitcom. sitcom. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. So you do these 15. Mm -hmm. Are you getting the royal treatment? People kissing your ass everywhere John goes? Uh, you know what? I was too busy to even pay attention. Um, I, I created the show. I wrote on the show. I acted on the show. Um, I would have to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning to do radio on the East Coast every day. So you're constantly pushing it. Uh, then you would go to work and I would fall asleep. Then you go into casting. You would act. You would, then you would go into the writer's room at night, then I would go home, I'd go to sleep, and I'd get up before, and I would do this thing over and over and over. And this was just, so I was so lost. And then days off, you would do publicity and stuff like that. So I, I, there was, I didn't even, I wasn't even aware of what was going on. There was maybe a handful of moments where you're standing there looking at the stage and going to yourself, this is really cool. Well, weren't you ever, so you never were at a place where you wanted to just pinch yourself going, oh my, you know, this is it. I think the, the, the strange thing about that was yes. And it was when the first day we walked into uh, the soundstage at Warner Brothers, uh, Universal, and it was an empty stage and someone said, this is, this is, this is where we're going to build your thing. And I looked and I went, this is really cool. Mm -hmm. uh, the other moment that was really cool was when we did the upfronts where the network introduces the show to all the advertisers in New York. And I was standing on stage there by myself doing my act and just staring at all these advertisers going, okay, this is really, really cool. But those are like all the only two moments that I remember. After that, I just went into to, to wow. work mode. Autopilot. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about how you were getting anxious uh, years prior. You're mm -hmm. turning to marijuana as a way to just kind of mellow out. That's what I heard, right? I mean, back in the eighties, there was another. Pot. Well, no, I grew I grew up in the, I grew up in the, in the late sixties. So to me, pot was like a cigarette. Okay. So you just smoked pot and you got high. I don't think there was. I don't think it was like an escapism. I think it was just you enjoyed what you did. Okay. Because what I was curious about is you get your own show. Mm -hmm. Were you were you high throughout the entire experience? Where perhaps some of that, oh my God, was just a little bit dulled enough, maybe for you even to get through it without being. Distracted. No, no, no. Like I said, I didn't get, last time I got high was 86, so that was like 93, 94. Oh, so you weren't, okay, I got it. So you weren't even involved with pot. No, no, no. I would, I would, I, after a show or something like that, I would, I would, you know, have a few drinks or something like that, but that was about it. So you do this show, you do 15 episodes. Right. Um, I read a little bit about it online mm -hmm. and the two reviews were very good, actually. Oh, good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, um, but unfortunately the show, uh, it was called uh, Half- the second half. The second half. The show's not available to be purchased. Mm -hmm. um, but like I said, the reviews were really good. You had Wayne Knight. You had mm -hmm. Mindy Cohen. Mindy Cohen? Oh, yeah, I did. From Facts of Life. That character was supposed to be... Uh, um, it was just... I, I, I forget. What, I, I remember it was supposed to be something weird. And they couldn't find what they were looking for. And I remember going into the auditions and Mindy Cohen came in the room and she blew the room apart. I mean, she just killed. And so she leaves the room and one of the producers went, it's too bad we can't use her. And I said, what do you mean you can't use her? They said, because she's famous. And I said, who is she? <laughs> 
You know, as a stand-up, <laughs> you worked in clubs all the time. I didn't even watch TV. Actually, when I got the TV show, I didn't know how to write a sitcom. So I wound up having to watch sitcoms to learn how to what, see what sitcoms were like. Right. Uh, so I had no idea who Mindy Cohen was. And she was great. She, I, one of the nicest, 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 and can drink a sailor under the table. Mindy Cohen, if you don't know who she is, she's in fact, she was in Facts of right. Life, mm -hmm. and she was the heavier girl. Right. And well, she's funny. Really? Funny, funny, funny. She still funny acts. Lady. She's still very busy. Yeah, actually. Okay. Yeah. So um, this is the part where I think it would be really devastating. The news that the network is not picking up the show. Well, I had, I went to, uh, I get the call that is not being picked up. And it's like a, a Tuesday, I get the phone call. And on Tuesday night, my, uh, my wife and I go up to San Francisco, up to uh, Pebble Beach with her family. And we go up there for a couple of days and I play golf. I hang out, have a great time, blah, blah. It's really nice. Nothing said. So I get canceled just before Thanksgiving. And um, so then we finish doing, we come back and, I, and I'm getting the car from Burbank Airport. I'm in the car like two minutes and I get a phone call from Castle Rock, who was a production company. And Glenn Patnick says to me, he says, hey, John, he said, uh, NBC, your ratings were so high last week that NBC decided to pick you up for five more shows. I said, oh, cool. So he said, I'll meet you over Universal this afternoon. So I go, okay, hang up. And my wife says to me, you were canceled? And I said, yeah. She said, why didn't you tell me? I said, what? If I would have told you, it would have bummed everybody out. So, you know, I, I decided not to, and I left it alone. So we wound up doing the other shows and stuff like that. Wait, I'm a little confused. Maybe I totally misheard you. You get a call that you've been picked up for five more? Yeah. Of this sitcom. Of this sitcom. And you'd already been canceled? Already been canceled. So... Well, not not legally canceled, but told that they're not going to pick up the so back So it turns night. out it really wasn't the canceled. Back it wasn't canceled, but then what happens is, so you, you we shoot five more, whatever, four, five, six, whatever it was, I don't remember. Uh, so we shoot those, and then when it comes time to pick up the new season, my show doesn't get picked up. Uh, fortunately for me, as soon as it was over, I went out and started doing stand-up again. Mm -hmm. So I was so busy doing it, and I was kind of relieved that I wasn't... I mean, I would have loved to have done more. I would have, you know, be honest with you, yeah, I would have loved to have done more. But it was... I was so exhausted. It was... It was, it was it's it grueling, was, right? Well, fighting with the other producers and stuff like that, because I wanted one show and they wanted another show. So there was always that constant battle with, uh, you know... And it's your persona. It was my persona. And you're the one who sold it. Right. But they were the showrunners, and the showrunners wanted... They came from Murphy Brown and they wanted this sort of like Murphy Brown type show. And see, I wanted a show about a divorced dad that happened to be a sports writer. They wanted a show about a sports writer that happened to be a divorced dad. So we fought and fought over and over about Well, that. the review that I read, or a couple of them, was what mm. they loved about it is you didn't even need to be a sports person to love the show. Right. It wasn't so, supposed to be about sports. It was right. supposed to be, that was supposed to be the secondary part of it. So uh, you look at Seinfeld's success, he's like basically a billionaire. He is a billionaire. Okay. And you look at some others, Paul Reiser, mm -hmm. around that time, I think Mad yeah. About You was mm -hmm. around. Sure. Um, is there envy? What, what are your feelings? Sure. Oh, sure. Um, but not not jealousy. I mean, I mean, I think everybody wants to get to the top and you hope that you get to that point. And when it doesn't happen, I mean, I did about uh, four more pilots after that. Um, your own show, out. four mm -hmm. more pilots of your own show. 
that uh, never made it. They didn't get picked up, right? They didn't get picked up. Okay, because right. generally what happens, for those of you who don't know, the network will order, the first they look at scripts. Mm -hmm. Then after you get past that point, then they will order pilots to actually be shot. Right. And then they decide after yeah. they see it. It's it's an amazing it's it. an amazing process watching how you go from you know yes you got here's a TV show to let's get a now you got to get a production company to like you now you got to get a script order now you got to get a writer now you got to get a script order and the hole keeps getting smaller and smaller till it's why am I turned on right now? <laughs> 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 but you know what it's interesting to me also um, you have a great attitude about it. Well, it happened. And there's nothing you can do about it. Um, you know, I think when it when it didn't when it happened, I was pissed and I was you know I was I was upset by it and was like, you know, walking around angry. Um, but then I, I I always knew that I was funny enough to get something else and and things kept coming along and stuff like that and then they stopped. You know, you know a lot of your your jokes, um, you know, they're really well crafted. They're tight. Thank you. And, and they're very relatable. Mm -hmm. Now, that's great, but there's also a danger a bit with that kind of joke writing because while you bring your persona to it, mm -hmm. they're easy to be lifted, right? Did you ever sure. get concerned? In other words, a comment, if I were to write about being neurotic and Jewish, mm -hmm. yeah, okay, that's very specific to me or my my particular mm -hmm. an old girlfriend. Mm -hmm. Did you did that ever concern you? Nope. The idea that your jokes no. could be no, I remember. I, I remember uh, Larry David one time. Someone did a joke of his, and he went. Uh, someone said to him, "Aren't you upset?" And he said, "No, I'll just keep writing. I'll write faster than they can they can remember." And it was the same thing. I, I you know, no, I never thought about it. I, I, you know, you would see someone do your joke, and you would, you know, go, "Oh, fuck you," you know. But I, it wasn't. It wasn't. You know, no, you just kept going. You ever confront a comic about it? Um, Ever get into yes. almost fisticuffs, as they say? I got into a fisticuffs with a guy one time because I did a joke on stage. I had twice, actually, uh, that I remember. And I did a joke one time about 7-Eleven. Uh, I forget what the joke I remember it was a 7-Eleven joke, and this comic came out and wanted to fight me about it. Hey, I do a joke about 7-Eleven. It's 7-Eleven joke, stupid. Everyone does a 7-Eleven joke. But there was another guy. I had just stopped smoking. And I had been like on my third day of not having a cigarette. And this comic came out to me. He said, hey, John, you did one of my jokes. And I said, no, I didn't do one of your jokes. And he said, you did one of my jokes. And I said, I, I don't even know your act. I don't even know you. Yeah. No, I knew him. <laughs> and I said, I don't even know your act. And he said to me, he said, uh, you did my joke. And I said, what's the joke? And he said to me, uh, you mentioned the word phone in your act. No, I really? swear to you. And I said, what, what are you talking about? He says, you, you were talking about the, a phone call. And I said... Go away from me. He said, no, you got to promise me not to do it. And this was in front of the improv in New, in New York. I threw him across the car onto 44th Street. I just threw him across the car. I just <laughs> physically picked him up and threw him across the car. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and that was sometimes... There was... A, they, it was Paul Ryan. I did a joke one time on stage. I was bombing when I first started out. And uh, I did a joke. I did an old joke. And... Uh, Two comics came up to me when it was over that were, they were A acts and I was a, a D act at that point. And they came up to me and they said, hey, that, that, that's our old joke. And I went, are we going to argue about jokes that, are, that, that have been in the ether for a hundred years? That's our joke. And I went, at that moment I realized, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to fight with anyone. Right. Now you, you said you bombed. Uh, do you think that's a rite of passage? I think it's a rite of passage for any comic to take risks and sometimes risking will be certain jokes don't work. I think just certain nights don't work. 
I think you just meet a room that just doesn't. Uh, I mean, I was on a cruise recently, and 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 RSVP it, cruise. Um, no. <laughs> Business or pleasure? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I bombed. It was horrible. I had not bombed that bad in, in many many years. Uh, but it happens. Right, and what do you attribute it to? There's the 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 air in the room, and you just sometimes you don't you can't figure it out, right? They were really really old. It was really hot. It was humid, uh, and I they just didn't they didn't they did not buy John Mendoza that day. And and what does that do to your ego? Oh, it 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 uh, you you're stuck on a cruise with these people. <laughs> it's you know you you're walking and you can hear as you're walking by. That's the comic. <laughs> <laughs> Dead it's man not walking. Fun. It's, it's not fun at all. You know, we were talking. I want to play. Uh, do we have that other clip, Jeremy? Here's a little more John Mendoza for you. A little thirty second clip. There, go for it, Jeremy. Bought a new car this year. Bought a Porsche 911. Yeah. Found out why they call it 911. Two months later, you have to dial 911. Oh, I like that joke. <laughs> Stole my car. Seven thousand dollars a year for car insurance. They send me a Ford Escort as a loaner. Here's a quality automobile. The airbag has a twist tie on it. <laughs> Porsche was a fun car. I got caught doing 135. You know, you get caught at 70, 80 miles an hour. You're basically lying. Get out of a cop pulls you. Oh, I got diarrhea. I gotta get home real fast. <laughs> you get caught at 135. You better shit on that seat. I love that joke. Thanks. I mean, I loved Ma, but, you know, the shit on the seat is just so funny to me. It's a great visual. It's a great visual. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, how much of that joke was based in reality? How much of you using the truth and then springboarding into into that story or idea? The, uh, I had a Porsche. That was it. Okay. Uh, I got caught uh, up on Mulholland doing 125 miles an hour uh. in a different car. Uh, so it was just a combination of about four or five different events. And one time I got pulled over and I said to a cop in New York City and I was driving and a cop said to me, he said, do you know what you're doing? I said, listen, you, give me a ticket. I, I really don't care. I, I, I got a shit really, really bad. Just, <laughs> just give me the ticket. And the guy went, just go, 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 go away. Just go, go, go. And so it's that a combination of all those jokes. Is that true? That I mean, did you have to take a shit or that was just a way to get no, out? No, it was my way to get out of it. Yeah. I didn't have to take That's it. great. Now, uh, you just don't seem like a guy I could see driving driving around in a Porsche. That's interesting to me. I don't know um, why. I, you know, I don't know anything about cars. I grew up in New York City, right. and when I every car I've gotten has been a mistake that someone either sent me. Uh, my first car out here was there was a guy that was a, a sports agent, and he hired AC Green as his first client, and he had a Honda Accord, so he just hired this six foot ten guy to. to that he had a chauffeur around and wouldn't fit in the car. So he had to go buy a big truck. So he said, I, I got a two-year lease on this car. What do I do? And I didn't have a car. I just moved out here. And I said, I'll take it from you. And that's how I went out with that. Another time I got a car, uh, I was coming out of Universal and I made a right. And that Honda Accord broke down in front of a BMW place. And I walked inside and I said, can I get a car? And I got a car. And then uh, I had a business manager and he said, do you ever have a Porsche? And I said, no. He said, I I'll, I'll get you a Porsche. And I got a Porsche, and it, and that's how I wound up in my car. Right, and things have changed, not in a bad way, but you're you've settled down, John. Well, you know what? Prius. When I back in back in the seventies, when there was gas lines, I don't know if you remember gas lines at all. Yeah, I, vaguely. Vaguely, yeah. Okay, so there was these gas lines, and I remember sitting there thinking to myself, if they ever come out with a car that doesn't burn gas really hard, I'm going to buy that car. And when the when uh, the Prius came out, I saw this car and I waited and I waited and finally it was nice enough and I and I so I bought one. You know, um, getting back to you know, you you are 
a comic, obviously. And mm -hmm. some comics are hyphenates, you know, they're writer, producer. Mm -hmm. um, I try and I feel I'm a bit of a hyphenate. And some comics, though, that's all they want to do. Mm -hmm. And that's also all they can do. Mm -hmm. Like I know comics will be like, I couldn't do any other job. Right. Do you feel like you're that kind of comic? Um, no, I mean, I could, I, I've written on TV shows before. I've done that before. Uh, obviously I've acted on TV shows. I'm not a great actor. I'm not really that good at it. Uh, I love, I love doing television in the sense where I love going in front of a live audience and getting that response. It's great. Uh, stand up is, I've always loved stand up. It's just so much fun to stand on a stage and just sort of like stand there and, and know that you can control, you know, a thousand, two thousand, three thousand people. It's just, I just love it. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, with your stand up, uh, a lot of comics will practice, you know, sets repeatedly. You have a different way of doing it, don't you? I yeah. mean, you'll try jokes on the spot. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's the fun part about it. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's working without a net. That's the well, beauty of it. I love that too, in the sense I like playing with the audience right. and mm -hmm. that's really also yeah. working without mm -hmm. a net. Yeah. But with um, network TV, they generally want to know your set ahead of time, at least today. They always have. Uh, um, one time I, I, I did a Tonight Show spot and I said to my agent, the first three jokes don't work. And he said, what do you mean they don't work? I said, I tried them, they don't work. And he said, why are you doing them? I said, I, I want to see if I can dig myself out of a hole. <laughs> <laughs> And, for, and fortunately, unfortunately, the first joke didn't work. The second joke did. The third joke did. And next thing I knew, I was, I was in a rhythm and I was... For most people, they would be scared to death to do that. I had done enough by then, so it was kind of cool. The only time I really, really got frightened was like the last week that was Carson was on. I was one of the last five comics that Carson had. And uh, that, was, that was frightening. Because? Because Johnny was like your grandfather that you wanted to please... And you wanted to make sure that the last thing that he saw from you was really, really good. So that was that's what I did. When you look at the arc of your career, um, you're working. Mm -hmm. You're you're out there doing it. Mm -hmm. What's where do you see? Are, are you when as you look back, are you proud? And uh, do you feel like I'm a success? I've achieved what I went for. And also, where do you see yourself going? Um, well, that's a cool question. Uh, if it all ended today, it, it was a great run. Uh, I have no idea. No idea about the future? The future. Is that how it's always been? Um, no, there was, there was more of a game plan, but I think as you get older and they, the frustration sets in and, and you've got to battle being older in, in a very young market, uh, I think you... It's not give up, but you don't you you don't work as hard at it as as you once did. But wouldn't that be a reason to work harder? Perhaps for one, yes. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, but it sounds to me though that your um, your drive has always been the same. Uh, no? no, 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 no. I had I had I had I had markers, and I I you know there was a point where I wanted to um, I wanted to be you know. I wanted to be a regular at the improv and I wanted to do this and I wanted to be on a Tonight Show by a certain point. And, and there was all these things that I wanted to do and I, and I succeeded at each one of those. Um, so yeah, no, there was always markers in front of it. And there's, and you're saying you have no markers in the future. 
I would love to get back on TV again, but I don't know how to get it. I don't. I don't know how to turn that switch on again, as as diligent as I did once before. Well, also before there was a system. There was. And the system was you audition like you do showcases, right? On at a comedy club, and there's casting people there, right. and mm -hmm. there's festivals you can go to, and yeah. and things mm -hmm. can happen very fast. Yeah, very, very, very fast. Now you're. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the addiction part of your life to some degree. I know we talked a little bit about the pot. Mm -hmm. How how um, how has addiction played a role in your life? Um, I know because one way I got to keep talking. Um, I don't re I don't remember. <laughs> I mean, is it that old and long ago? Yeah, yeah. I mean, eighty six was the last time I really got high. Uh, I drank, but I never. I, I, I when I was younger, I drank uh, excessively. Um, the reason I'm curious, you know, addiction and uh, often unhappiness and depression seem to be a thread mm -hmm. with a lot of comics, not everyone. Right. But, um, but you were, before 86, you were doing hard stuff. Sure. I, I was a heroin addict. Shooting it? Yeah. On the streets? I mean. Yeah. I, 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 uh, I, the last time I, I shot up heroin, I was in, a, in, a, in a, uh, somebody's house in, in an apartment in uh, the South Bronx. And it was painted. It was a blizzard outside. And I'm naked walking along the streets there. And a cop car pulls me over and puts me into a car. And I'm going into the emergency room at the hospital. And as I'm going in, I have a moment of clarity. And I look up and I see a sign that says, Marisania Emergency Room. And I thought to myself, I'm not dying in the hospital I was born in. Hmm. And that was the end of my heroin periods. And then I went to drugs and alcohol, various drugs and alcohol from that point on. Uh, but yeah, when I was younger, it was, you know, uh, yeah, it was getting high was, was it. Well, you, a lot of times, I don't know, you know, your psychology, but mm -hmm. there's a lot of pain that's being averted. Sure. What was mm -hmm. the, where was the pain? What was that about? Um, I don't know. I just think, uh, not knowing where you were going to go in life. I think I was, I was fairly, I was, uh, uneducated. Um, I, had no idea where I was going to go in life. But stumbling on, on, on going to a comedy club one time and finding this was a very, very lucky thing for me in life. You know, and, and I think that happens to people in life. They, they, they turn a corner and all of a sudden, you know, uh, they, 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 they see a guitar sitting on a thing then they learn how to play guitar or, or they walk into a comedy club or they find magic or, or they, you know, you know, find a computer and they, they become really good at that. And I, uh, so I think you get lucky in life and then you just have to hope that not only do you get lucky, that you get luckier and luckier and luckier as time goes on. Do you think then- That's why I don't do drugs or anything like that anymore. Well, what's interesting is when you stop, that sounds like that's when your career really soared. Yes, sure. And it's probably mm -hmm. no coincidence. Uh, probably not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a friend of mine turned me onto a book called- uh, um, 12, step, out, 12 no, steps little, of AA. Well, kind of, it kind of, it was like looking out for number one. Uh -huh. It was a book that was really popular back in the late seventies, early eighties, something like that. And, and I, and I started working on, on stuff like that and, uh, did some I Ching and stupid stuff like that. Well, you said you talked about not having an education. You have a high school education. I have a degree. So I didn't really go to school. But you're obviously quite bright, you know, comics uh, can't be, can't be yeah. a dummy and be coming up with premises and. Well, I love information and I, I'm very aware and I'm very, you know, I pay attention to a lot of stuff. I, you know, it's like my son, I, you know, he's brilliant. You know, he, he, he can 
recite stuff that's really, really cool. And, uh, you know, I, I, I wish I, I was as smart as him. Uh, does the education make you self-conscious? No. No, not at all. Yeah. No. I just wish I, I, I had more, more sources to, to grab from when I was younger. Mm -hmm. Well, it did stop you. No, it didn't stop me. It's the amazing thing about comedy. If you can make someone laugh, it doesn't matter. No, it doesn't. It's, it's one of the greatest, uh, I don't want to say powers, but uh, maybe power is the right word. To stand there and just know that you can make people laugh. It's you know, fun. John, there's a certain I sense, like a spiritual nature about you. And I find that. Mm -hmm. What's that about? I don't know. Do you feel it? Yeah. Uh, I think I'm just content with myself. You know, um, yeah, I just think I'm content with myself. You know, I, I know a lot of people that, that aren't, and I, I think that I, I've, I've played a role as a, a decent father. I think I've, I've helped my kids out. I think I, you know, uh, I enjoy what I do, and that's pretty much about it. Uh, you're, you have three children, right? Correct. You have one from your first marriage. How mm -hmm. old is she? 37. And you have a nice relationship with her? Yeah. A lot of times comics um, have broken marriages and relationships shattered. I got shattered. plenty of those. <laughs> plenty of those. Well, you've been married twice? Kind of, yeah. Do you, do you blame the comedy for that? Um, no. No, the first one I wasn't even married. Uh, I mean, I, I wasn't even doing comedy. Uh, and the second one, um, no. Not at all. We're, we're almost finished here. I just wanted to know, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you maybe we, we, you had met, you'd been wanting to talk about? Maybe we were talking a little earlier, something that slipped by? No. No. Maybe if you like me enough, I'll come back and we'll discuss something Well, I want to tell you, it's been great talking to you. And um, again, if you are- We didn't get to that phone call. Yeah, we had a phone call. <laughs> <laughs> we got a little bit caught up, but that's okay. No, you don't have it to- the phone call was before and then it dropped right as we uh, got into things. There was somebody that was stoned that was calling a little too late. <laughs> yeah, they were for the hot box prior to <laughs> us. Well, I want to thank all of you for listening. And again, I want to thank our guest, John Mendoza. If you'd like to see him, he'll be performing in January in Hollywood, Florida. Is that January 28th, did you say? Yes, sir. Okay, he is always just about always with Howie Mandel. Mm -hmm. So if you look up Howie Mandel of HowieMandel.com, you'll see where he's playing and he's a good chance you will see John. We'll You're see very good at what you do. Oh, thanks, John. I appreciate it. And we'll see you all soon right here on It's a Fair Question. I'm Vic Cohen, and it's a fair question. It's a fair question. It's a fair question. I'm Vic Cohen, and it's a fair question. It's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair question. I'm Vic Cohen, and it's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair quest, quest, question.